I'm Randy Rohde, and I'm fascinated with entrepreneurs and small business owners. Plus, I love baseball. Every show, I sit down with a small business owner, and we discuss their running the basis of entrepreneurship. We throw the ball around on strategy, management, execution, and innovation. Plus, a little fun baseball talk. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Settle in, grab your Cracker Jacks, and you know what they say. Play ball. Okay, it's a great day for a ball game. And, uh, you know, our guest today had a distinguished career in broadcast journalism before setting her sights on being an entrepreneur and small business owner. She's a mother of two, educated in the United Kingdom, went on to study at Columbia University, the University of Hong Kong, and the University of Edinburgh world traveler here. Uh, She then went on to the world of broadcast journalism, working for, listen to this, the BBC, the CNN, actually not the CNN or CNN, CNBC Europe. And before setting out on her own, she was a reporter for Bloomberg News. So after a distinguished career in journalism, she decided to join the family business of sorts and creating her current passion the award-winning luxury children's clothing company named for her own two children. Please welcome to the show today, Iko Stevenson, the founder of Mika and Milo. And also joining her today is her partner and husband, Henry DL. So both of you, welcome all the way from Hong Kong. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you Andy. very much. Thank you. Great yeah. pleasure to be here. Yeah, Thanks yeah. So, so exciting from Hong Kong. I do have to believe you're the first guest on the show from Hong Kong. I would love to get over there and explore. Uh, You guys are going through and, you know, the whole world is just going through incredible times and changes right now. So I'm sure you could travel too much, really. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but welcome. I'm so excited to have you guys on board. Ico. So, yeah. Edinburgh, Hong Kong, you've been all over this. So your roots are family from Edinburgh and then relocated to Hong Kong. How do do you get from the connection of Edinburgh to Hong Kong? Well, basically, our family's been working in the woolen business for over a century. Um, My great grandfather used to run his own woolen mill. Um, producing his own brand of tweeds called McNabb Tweeds on the outskirts of Edinburgh. And when my father joined the business, he added cashmere to the mix. Now, in the past, um, the world's finest cashmere came from Scotland. But fast forward 100 years, most of the world, um, well, the world's top grade cashmere now comes from Inner Mongolia, owing to partly owing to the meteoric rise of China. And obviously, that's where the goats grow because the, the winter temperatures are extremely cold, um, plunging below 40, minus 40 Celsius, allowing the goats to grow a fine inner coat and it's this fine inner coat which makes the most delicious um, cashmere jumpers and um, so how did we go from Scotland to Hong Kong? My father moved to Tokyo um, when he was in his 20s and started working for a trading house. It was called Dodwell's. Um, so in Hong Kong, we have Swire and Jardine Matheson. And Dodwell was the um, equivalent house in Japan, though it's no longer in existence. And then he struck out on um, um, and did his own business. And owing to his, um, family, the, his you know, prior family business in the woolen trade, he went into cashmere. And um, we've been working in cashmere ever since. Wow. 
That is that a was story. Over forty years ago, yeah. Yeah, that so, is that is incredible. Okay, so let me ask you: Did you pull uh, your husband Henry into the business, or was were Henry? Were you also involved yeah. in the textiles and and fashion? Not really, yeah, not really. I mean, my, my my contribution was I've always been involved in SEO and oh. in tech. Okay. So yeah, I was just a very convenient um, kind of relationship, really, because the husband was able to. <laughs> Get the website online. Um, it's true. You know, it's true. Get I, the I content, have, link, yeah. link building, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was all very convenient. Really, I don't know that my wife would ever describe me as being convenient. I don't know. <laughs> 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 well, I do have yeah. to laugh at that. Okay, so Iko, I, I want to obviously we're I, we're going to explore Miko and Milo and just some of the great stuff that you have accomplished there. I mean, winning some fabulous awards uh, in your industry. But I also have to talk with you about your background in broadcast journalism. You have worked at really some of the top news agencies across uh, the universe here at this point. Well, first of all, what did you do? Were you a writer, an on-air talent, Um, producer? I was a writer and producer. Um, I think I wanted to go into journalism for a very young age. I think our family is sort of loosely connected to um, Robert Louis Stevenson. So I always had this sort of Mm. mindset that I wanted to become a writer. But really, um, I was studying at Columbia and the Twin Towers came down. So um, I didn't really want to go back to New York after that. And I had a friend who was working at CNN. I was like, wow, that sounds really awesome. I'd love to work there. And they're like, oh, we're looking for someone who's going to turn the teleprompter. And so that's how I started sort of turning the teleprompter. And there are a couple of episodes where I sort of like, because we had really early morning starts, like two, two or three o'clock in the morning, right. where I'd fall asleep at the teleprompter and the anchor would sort of stumble on the news. But yeah, it sort of started like that. That is incredible. I'm assuming you studied journalism in school. No, I didn't. In university? No? No? I think it was like in those days, you didn't really have to have a vocational um, degree. So a lot of people who studied history or even history of art went to go on and work at Goldman Sachs. And I think that was um, sort of what it was like in those days. So, but I had a background in social sciences, which sets you up for journalism pretty well because, you know, it's an understanding of how the world kind of works and how societies kind of function. Right, Um, right. But journalism, I don't think you necessarily, I mean, as long as you have an analytical mind and a curiosity, I don't think you need a particular background. Perhaps, I mean, you know, a degree in chemistry wouldn't really jive, but as long as, because it's, it's constantly breaking, as long as you have a curiosity and, you know, a want to understand what's happening and just, you know, it's, it's a very dynamic kind of world. It was really fun, actually. But for me, it became sort of quite tiring and sort of relentless sort of like cycle of like breaking news, never sort of really sort of focusing on one story in particular. And my dream was always to get into the BBC, which I eventually did when I was in London. But when I got into the BBC, it really wasn't quite what I imagined. There were lots of night shifts and um, I didn't, I didn't really, I think if you go into TV news, your end game probably should be to be behind the camera, on camera rather. Um, But for me, that wasn't really what I wanted to do and um, my boss at the BBC was like you know I don't encourage many people to go on air but I would encourage you and instead of feeling excited I just felt a complete and utter fear and that's when I realized that perhaps I was in the wrong um, industry (laughs) and the thought of like continuing on for night shifts forevermore kind of left me a bit cold so that's when I sort of um left and my dad was like why don't you come and join the family business i was like yeah i'll give it a go and then um while i was doing the family business i 
did, went back to school um, at Hong Kong University and did a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. And that's how I started um, sort of more long form journalism. Because okay. I realized that creative writing was really not my cup of tea at all. <laughs> all right. All right. So I would imagine, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but this, you know, in today's age, news, mm-hmm. uh, you can watch news, read news 24 7. And so is that kind of the life? Is that the pace, so to speak, if you're in the industry yeah. as well? Well, it's even more intense because you're, you're not only sort of intaking, you know, sort of digesting the news, you've got to turn it around and right. then you've got to create video and it's a constant and then you've got to write a 40 second story. So it's it's relentless. I mean, I remember I'd come home, my flatmates in London were like, so what were the headlines? And I'm like, I honestly can't remember. It was just <laughs> a constant blast and like news it's upon news upon news. Coming yeah, at and it you. Felt yeah. like after a while, it felt like it was really exciting, but you just felt like you were a jack of all trades when it came to, you didn't really specialize in any particular subject. So then it was kind of quite nice to sort of um, just focus on climate change in particular, because I realized after mm. sort of years of business journalists that um, I was really quite more, much more passionate about the environment. Mm. And so, you know, after years of writing about climate change, I think when I decided to set up Mika Milo, it was important to do something that was sustainable. Right, um, right. Yeah. Well, I do want to touch on that, and especially, I think, as it relates with your particular industry, the sustainability. But I do have to ask you one more question, though, about in the stories. Were there any particular kind of standout stories that you worked on that were meaningful to you or impactful that you can recall? Well, just trying to think. One really highlight was when I was at CNBC, we went to Davos and um, sort of, you know, saw Bill Clinton those people sort of walking around that was quite fun yeah no i can't say there were any particular highlights all mm-hmm. right all right well that's good i still i in my mind i can only i've got this like vision of like uh, just constant rush of information and uh, i remember like, when i was actually at cnn I, I got the wrong banner on air and i got crucified in front of the uh, in front of the newsroom, like literally shouting in front of everyone and completely humiliated. Um, it, can, it can be like that. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, because you're literally flying by the seat of your pants. So it's kind of like errors do happen. So I would say that, yeah, it's sort of a quite a higher gentleman, sort of quite a young person's job as a result, you know. Right. Yeah. All right. So, so yeah, that- I definitely enjoyed it. Oh, good. Uh, uh, so let's flash forward a little bit to today. So today you are the founder of this award-winning cashmere clothing company for kids. So tell us, yeah. uh, tell us a little bit about Mika and Milo. Um, the well, company, after, not the kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was named after my two children, my eldest daughter being Mika and my youngest Milo. Um, so I was working in the family business. And when I was pregnant with Milo, I just thought, wouldn't it be nice to... Um, do something for little ones because cashmere is um, it's a really lovely material for little kids because it's soft, it's breathable, it's natural, it's not itchy, um, it can regulate their temperatures so kids can move from being outside in the cold to being in you know indoors without the risk of overheating with SIDS and all that kind of stuff. And actually, originally, I just wanted to make um, blankets because I found um, it was really hard to find the right the right sort of like cashmere blanket. They're either too small or too thin. So I, it kind of started off originally like that and then it gradually evolved into 
a larger collection. And actually, the first collection I designed, um, I'm really deadly embarrassed about because it had lots of like ear, you know, like dog ears everywhere and <laughs> funny ears. It's all quite random and weird. <laughs> um, but you know, yeah. So lots of lots of mistakes, like countless countless mistakes. Um, lots of sampling errors. But I'd say that making mistakes is really probably the fastest way to learn but very much a steep uphill um, learning curve. And yeah, running your own business has got lots of challenges. Oh, really. yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, when when did you start the company? Um, it was like 2019, I'd okay. say. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, yeah. obviously, you've got some wonderful uh, pieces and, and product because you've won some really wonderful awards junior design award for best international fashion newcomer you're nominated for the best children's knitwear uh in that category so you're churning out some incredible incredible work i know it's, it's all quite surprising really um yeah and then we we went to um paris playtime was it so january just pre-pandemic and we got um selected as one of the top 12 um new brands to watch so that's quite cool um and then obviously the pandemic hit and um it's been sort of quite hot you know no trades no trade shows since then so right. i'd say sort of, um, starting a business during a pandemic is probably a bit more challenging than normal times uh, um yes well then, we've yeah. we've had a few uh guests on that have done that exactly and it, yeah so all kinds of different challenges so with that though i know you have your online people can go online the mika-milo.com order mm-hmm. directly out of your site mm-hmm. Do you are you also carried in some retail brick and mortar stores as well? Are you distributed? Yeah, we have, we have a couple of stockists in Italy, just some small stockists, okay. and um, then in the US we stopped on the Masonet and the Doppel, and we have a, a, a small shop in stocked a, a small stockist in Hong Kong as well. Okay, but we're very much a new brand. And I'd say one of the greatest challenges we've had perhaps is um, finding new buyers um, during a pandemic where we are unable to attend any physical trade shows. And also um, compounded by the fact that Hong Kong has possibly the strictest quarantine measures. So um, would we, so, so for example, if um, Paris Playtime were to resume next January, the question would be, would it be worth going if I was, you know, to have to come back and endure three weeks of quarantine um, and then, you know, not see my kids for up to four, four to five weeks. Wow. So, you know, um, yeah. but then I suppose the way around that is obviously to find agents who can go on your behalf or, you know, join sh- showrooms, that sort of stuff. Right. So I think it's sort of like, you know, running a business, as you probably know yourself, is just you just always have. And whenever there's a roadblock, you have to think about how you can go around the roadblock, you know, all the various routes you can take. And it's sort of constantly sort of trying to problem solve, you know, using alter- alternative methods rather. Exactly. It's always yeah. uh, right. This nonstop. I mean, there's fun and it's, you're thinking about things strategically, thinking about growing, but at the same time, you know, you always have this kind of like the news flow of challenges uh, that That's you have right. to think about how do you overcome and uh, or move around to keep yeah. on going forward. We had a mm-hmm. great guest uh, a while back that talked about pivoting, that he just really always expected to pivot about every 18 <laughs> months. And he, yeah. And once he had that mindset, it was like, then the challenges or whatever that came his way, it was like much easier to deal with because he just yeah, expected that's right, it. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Yeah. So it's just time to pivot. Off we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
So let me take a step back a little bit. So you have this heritage of the textile industry. Start back to your great grandfather, which is fabulous. So would you say you you grew up in the industry? Was this kind of a passion that you had as a young child? Did you think growing up maybe I might join or? No, well, no, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I've always, um, it's always been around, so I've always found it interesting. I wouldn't say it was my first passion, because my first passion was certainly writing and journalism. Though I think after working for several large corporations, it, the idea of starting my own business um, seemed more appealing later on in life. So, yeah, I'd say it's something that developed um, later on. Though I've always had an interest, obviously, in um, casual in particular, in the family business. Yeah, and also it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, stages of your life. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm really glad that I did all the broadcast stuff when I was younger because I had the energy for it. And I think, um, you know, it was re- really great to cut your teeth with all these um, really great sort of international companies. But as you get a bit older and you have kids, you're looking for something that is a bit more flexible, that can sort of like, you know, work in your life with your children. And so sort of setting up your own business, although it's arguably more challenging, has that sort of flexibility. Um mm. So, yeah, I think it's all about different stages in life. I mean, do I still love writing? Yes, and I do still write occasionally. It'll always be my first love. Right. But you have more, love, more, more than one love in life, you know? Yeah. So, well, yeah. I've got to imagine... Well, I would imagine Sorry. that your, you know, love of writing, your your creativity in writing has got to be an asset for you in running your business and helping to market your business. I, it is something I keep pushing with my kids is like, learn how to communicate, learn how to mm-hmm. write effectively, because regardless, yeah, yeah, yeah. regardless of what it is that you do uh, as a career it will always be valued. If you can communicate and write effectively, you, you will. The one, one advice I got when I was at Bloomberg was sort of like, if you're writing something, your first, your first line has got to be the hook. Like, why is this interesting? Why yeah. should I read on further? So you have to always sort of lead with your strongest points. Right. And um, I think that's always a, a really good way to sort of, you know, a, you know, sort of address anything that you write. Like yeah. Just lead with something sort of, so it makes the person want to read the next sentence, you know? Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Oh, that's good advice. So would you say that you're continuing the family business in, in what it is that you're doing now with uh, Mika I and Milo? So, yeah. yeah, I think so. I think, um, I think my dad, I think that there's an element of him that's quite chuffed that I'm sort of continuing it on in a different, you know, sort of, yeah, because I mean, I still work in the family business and sort of, but then I've got my own, my own sort of stream, if that makes sense. Because I think for any child to join the family business, there's always an element of like, well, shouldn't I be doing my own business? So I'm glad that I have both, if that makes sense. So yeah. I've, oh, yeah. so, so your family business in the, I, I don't know what, what that's called even, but so your family business that your great grandfather started, that is still going. That's a still ongoing. Yeah, Actually, no. Oh. He, um, no. Yeah. He actually did quite well. He had um, his own brand of McNabb tweeds and they, it was sold throughout the US and Europe. And then um, my grandfather took over the business and he became rather ill. So the business actually got sold to uh, Lord Fraser. And that's when my father moved out to Asia and struck out on his own. Uh-huh. Um, Right. Yeah, but then he eventually sort of returned back to the family roots of like you know with textiles and by going into cashmere. So kind of sort of went full circle in some ways. Oh, yeah. very fun! All right, any fun clients that uh, you've sold to or that are uh, utilizing any of the uh, the fun products you make? 
Mm. Any famous? You- I yeah, you know, I don't know any fun famous. Like, you have any British royalty? You know that they've swaddled um, swaddled their yeah. children in your yeah. cashmere. All right. Have we seen any of your uh, lines in magazines? In any kind of clothing magazines or anything? Um, I think there was like a feature in sort of like Luna magazine. This is just sort of like, um, you know, European sort of kids fashion magazines. Yeah. And then featured in a magazine in the UK called CWB magazine. But yeah, that's really it. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah, huh? I, I need to focus more on the marketing. Henry's yeah, always telling me yeah. I should do more, but I think I'm more sort of into the design, so I sort of tend to neglect <laughs> that side. Well, it's a never-ending problem. That's why you have Henry, right? He's yeah, exactly. Mr. Convenient yeah. over there for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Put to use. Yes, yeah. put him to use. I'm still getting over the that. Yeah, I'm convenient. I'm like, okay, that's good. <laughs> All right, so uh, Iko, it is that time of the show, and it's time for the seventh inning stretch. All right, we have got the seventh inning stretch, Iko. This is where we uh, hit you up with a baseball question um, okay. that is eh, somewhat relative to your niche, I guess. We'll see. I think it is. Actually, my team does a pretty good job on pulling questions that are too difficult or but maybe a little bit uh, challenging. I don't know. We'll have fun. I'm assuming because of your European background, being in Asia, you probably are not real knowledgeable about baseball. I don't... Um, mm, they're definitely not. In fact, no knowledge at all. Really rather embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Probably uh, uh, cricket or rounders, maybe. That might be a little more. Oh, no, no, those either. Really quite inept when it comes to these kind of sports. All right. So here's our question then for you. And yeah. sticking with our pattern, kind of relative to what you do, uh, we're going to mm-hmm. talk about uh, uniform clothing. All right. Okay. All right. All right. So here's a question for you. What fabric or material has not been used in baseball uniforms? And I'm going to give you uh, six options to choose from. Okay. Wool, flannel, straw, satin, polyester, or cotton? Straw. Straw, straw is your, straw is your your guess. Uh, Henry, I'll I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you. <laughs> Henry, I'll let you throw in there if you want as well. Okay, I'm, uh, basically saying she failed. I'm going to go for a straw of bull, and I'm going to say wool. Okay, all right. Uh, well, both of you struck out, so nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, so I'll give you I'll give you a little bit of history on this. So uh, the New York Knickerbockers. So this is a very old. They were the first baseball team to wear uniforms. They took the field in April of 1849 with pants made of blue wool. All right. And white flannel shirts. So I think they were quite hot playing in the middle of the summer in that fabric. Maybe not. But and then in the uh, 1840s and 18 through the 70s, baseball players wore various types of hats. And there they were made out of all different kinds of material, including straw, 
there we go. Uh, satin uniforms were developed by several teams, including the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, my father-in-law's favorite team, for night games because they thought the sheen of the fabric was more reflective and easier to see. Current day, modern day uniforms are made out of polyester. So cotton is the only material that uh, uniforms have not been made from. I know. I was shocked when I saw that too. I thought, really? So don't feel bad though, Aiko. I I guessed, when I saw the question at first, I guessed straw as well when I first saw it. Wears two, I should say rounded. Right, exactly. All right. <laughs> All right. So don't worry, I got stumped as well. You did well though for you know coming in from dialing in from Hong Kong. You you still you know played the game, so that was good. All right. Well, let's get back to it. Play ball. So I know, and you mentioned a bit earlier about sustainability and mm. working in uh, the textile industry and working with natural products that you and material that you work with talk about sustainability. What are some of the things that you're doing or involved with to help sustainability, environmental friendliness, those kinds of things? Cause I know you're passionate about it. So I'm sure you've been exploring this and, and really put into practice uh, some really some great things. Well, the, the yarn suppliers that we work with, um, they work they, they work specifically with um, with farms, goat farms that are they that treat the animals well and they're looked after. So, cashmere unto itself, when the goats are looked after well, is a sustainable natural fiber. In the past, the goats were allowed to roam the grass plains in Inner Mongolia, and that was actually very bad for the environment, which you wouldn't, which is quite surprising. You think, you know, letting a goat just run wild and do its thing would be okay. But what happens when, when a goat chews the grass is it pulls the roots out and that in, it, that in itself sort of unsettles the soil, leaving it vulnerable to des- desertification. So when the wind blows, we used to have these giant sandstorms that would blow as far down as um, Hong Kong. So one of the companies that we work with has done this huge education program with the, with the goat herders. And so they now have these goat farms where the, go- where the goats are sort of la- allowed to roam a certain area and they're fe- you know, fed hay. And there's been a, a giant sort of um, reforestation program to stabilize the soil. And um, yeah, the, the yarn supplies that we work with also use environmentally friendly dyes and we recycle the plastic bags that we use. So everything that's packaged in a plastic bag gets reused like, you know, season after season. Everything that we send out to our customers is done in a biodegradable bag. And we also um, have partnered with One Tree, One Tree Planted and plant trees every month to try and offset our carbon footprint. Very nice. Um, but I think sort of fashion is one of the um, one of the most polluting industries. So um, the, our basic ethos is to be the antithesis of fast, fast fashion, which this, I mean, I mean, I, I'm guilty of buying T-shirts from Zara as well. But the problem with that is they literally last for about sort of six to 12 months mm-hmm. at best. And right. then you are forced to buy again. Whereas if you invest in something that's a bit more higher quality, then, you know, hopefully it will last and then you can pass it down to the next sibling who can then sort of pass it down to a friend who then can pass it down hopefully to the next generation. And I think our ultimate goal is to make things that do have that durability. At least you're, make, you're not sort of creating rubbish that ends up in the landfill in 12 months' time. Right. Um, I, I love that. And 
I've I've read that somewhere in regards to the fashion and about the impact on the environment that it that it really has a pretty big footprint and so I love the idea and some of the things that you're talking about from a sustainability and especially the issue around I guess durability is uh, the good word to use meaning that you buy the quality you can hand it down from generation to generation because it will last and so that in itself uh, obviously reduces the impact because you're not having to produce all of that all the time. What do you have to say, you know, to people that might take a position that what you do to the goats is harmful or inhumane? Is there, I'm sure you probably have addressed that at some point or another. Well, I think in the past goats were combed and that probably could be regarded to be inhumane because it's quite painful. But the, I think most common sort of farming practices, practices today are to shear the goats. So that's really sort of like going to the hairdresser. And some people say that it's cruel to rob the coats of this inner coat. But that really isn't the case because in Inner Mongolia in the summer, it, the temperature climbs over 30 Celsius. So mm. you can imagine sort of wearing a foot, you know, a very thick woolly coat is actually more it's actually more harmful to the goat itself than removing it so it's actually a kindness to remove it and the goats aren't killed for their meat they're you know they're, they're kept there because they're valuable and they're looked after mm. and yeah they're they're encouraged to grow to live and grow more casually for the next for the next um, year and there are any they're, they're, and some people say that the goats are sort of you know shorn all year round. That simply isn't true. They're only um, shed in you know in April and the spring as the temperature starts to climb because they only produce enough hair to make one baby sized cashmere sweater a year. So they are definitely not shed in the winter because mm. it'd be absolutely fruitless to do so and probably end up killing the poor goat, which which would harm your business if you're a goat herder. Right. So yeah, I think there is a, a lot of um, misconception around that. I just know growing up on a farm, I have a much better sense, I think of, you know, kind of the cycle of things like that. And, uh, but it's great that you addressed it that way. Cause I, I would imagine as well that it's actually is probably the right thing to do for the goats, which is to shear them just on an annual basis. And, uh, yeah, and use that very sustainable, very natural fibers. So, and also it helps to keep them clean up as well, really from hygiene point of view. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. sure. So I'm sure, and as we've talked a little bit about challenges that you face, certainly pandemic uh, has got to be one of the, probably one of the top things that come to mind, even when you have uh, have started out your clothing line. Can you think of some other challenges and what have you done or how have you approached overcoming those challenges? I think sort of like I mentioned before, so without, without going to physical trade shows, I think it's been a challenge to find new buyers. And I think during a pandemic climate, perhaps a lot of retail shops are reluctant to take on a new, more expensive brand um, and rather stick with brands that they already know and that are, uh, that are going to sell. And so one way we've tried to sort of overcome that problem is by working with them. Um, certain showrooms or agents in the countries that we wish to grow in. I'd say that's probably been the biggest challenge that we faced during the pandemic. Because obviously if you're in a trade show, you can imagine you meet lots of people, they can, they can sort of have a look at your stuff and see if they like it or not. Whereas if you're just sort of sending an email, a shot in the dark, um, you can see how that might not really fly. <laughs> yeah, and 
yeah, sort of a recent challenge that we that we had was um, I was going my my spring summer shoot was scheduled to take place in London um, in early July because the the buying season is literally this month. But the samples came back completely off the chain, so well off the chart is in wrong, wrong, wrong. So oh, they had no. to be resampled. So you know, there's all, all 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 sorts of various mishaps that happen along the way, and our photographers off traveling for the summer. So these are just you know various challenges that sort of rise and there was a point when I was thinking of just canning the whole collection um but then decided to sort of go back you know like no let's keep going and so just you know sort of finding alternative solutions yeah I would imagine, especially in your industry, when you're out trying to get in front of people and so you're trying to get in front of people in two different ways, uh, certainly consumers, people that to, to actually buy your product, but the other, and probably, and especially in the startup, probably is more important even is just getting in front of buyers uh, for various, you know, chains or, or outlets to pick mm-hmm. up the product. Yeah. So yeah. Henry, are you having some success? Are you helping in that or what? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing everything I can really. So really, I mean, I think the sort of, you know, one one big challenge, of course, with the startup is to get that sense of trust. Mm. So when someone hits the site from the B2C side of the um, business, you want them to feel, you know, comfortable to enter their credit card and so on. But it, in terms of getting the site kind of ranking um, and getting some eyeballs on it, the success that we had was with the gift market as well. So gifts. So, you know, for example, baby baby blankets, which are quite affordable, right? So that's like a sort of entry point. And like any kind of business um, kind of with uh, retail e-commerce, it's nice to get that trip sale in. So you get the customer signing up, pays up for the, you know, $50, for example, and then you build that trust and then they'll come back again. So that's mm-hmm. kind of one one tactic and approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you, I'm curious because so many times we have clients that do have products and we get asked uh, frequently if uh, advice about should they pursue selling on some of the large online outlets like Amazon or someplace like that. Have you given consideration to that place in your brand there? Would that be a, a fit? Curious uh, your thought process through that. To be perfectly honest, we haven't, haven't really explored Amazon, but I think perhaps um, because um, ours is a bit more expensive, we might not be too competitive because you can buy a so-called casual jumper, which clearly isn't casual on Amazon for like, Twenty dollars, right? So, but that probably isn't made of cashmere. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, maybe, but maybe Amazon isn't. Oh, no, I, mean, I don't know. I, yeah, I haven't really it, yeah. explored it. But yeah, perhaps it's something that we should look into. I mean, after all, it can't do any harm, right? Yeah, but again, just just my kind of quick point about that is that it's just a question of the cost because right. if you look on uh, on on um, Amazon there's some cashmere selling for ridiculously low prices and mm. it would just make it very, very difficult because the cashmere, which we do sell, um, it is the real deal. I mean, it, it, it is really luxurious. I mean, it kind of, it just, you know, it feels and, and, and to the touch, like the real thing. So anyways, yeah. So it's, I think it's just a question of uh, quality and, and uh, volume as well, really. Right. Right. Um, at the moment, I mean, things can always change, but yeah. Well, that's why I always wondering because knowing your product or what I know of your product, obviously it's a top tier quality product. And I don't know that you can convey appropriately on some of these larger 
platforms like Amazon, that Mm. quality and make that distinction. And this is why our price is here versus somewhere else. And, you know, and Henry, I think as you were um, mentioning earlier, you know, you can build that trust. You can really tell your story much more effectively, I think, on your own site and build that brand and and convey the value uh, that you have. Yeah, I also think I think would be lost on a site like Amazon, which yeah, has yeah. It's not, it's not even a fashion site. It's sort of everything, you know, including the bathroom sink can sold on Amazon. So <laughs> really sort of trying to stand out yeah. on Amazon, I think would be a very, very laborious yeah. task. I mean, and I don't, I just don't feel like it'd be the right platform at all. Really. Yeah. Whereas like take for example, Masonet, which is a, um, a U.S. kids um, online platform. I think that is a good place for us to be because you know, obviously people are there to buy children's clothes first and foremost. And so it's our sort of natural habitat. And I think um, we're probably better place, you know, better off mm-hmm. sort of um, establishing ourselves on yeah, yeah. places like this. Yeah, right. definitely. Have you extended beyond the wonderful world of cashmere are you are you um, well, our spring collection is um sort of organic cotton um okay. organic obviously because it's um more sustainable um and emits less carbon emissions um seed to final product than conventional cotton so yeah we just um um our first summer collection is just um just yeah it's on now and that's sort of um got got five percent cashmere just for extra softness but you really oh. can't notice it just really i suppose our our usp our unique selling point yeah. um but yeah sort of um organic cotton um tying the whole theme of um you know sustainability a couple of pieces have done quite well so i guess it's just something that we'll have to um, keep an eye on and see how it evolves going forward yeah. <laughs> oh, i mean it's just fun. basically you know you just have to kind of go with the flow of these things it's got its own natural evolution and find out sort of what sticks what doesn't some styles do well um you know perhaps you know maybe the cashmere blends will be will do better going forward because they're more affordable so it's really about sort of finding your groove and i'd say that probably takes a few years um i think when you're first sort of um starting your business it's just sort of like a bit of a hail mary (laughs) just hoping for the best and see what happens um (laughs) so yeah i think it's you know you've got Couple more years to sort of refine things and obviously you've got you know you've got consumers telling you what they like you've got your buyers telling you what they like then you sort of like get a feel for what the marketplace wants as opposed to what you think is quite cool as a designer so it's sort of um yeah it's a bit of a sort of you know, a work in progress. Right. I love that kind of a work in progress, which is a a good segue into maybe the next question, which is, you know, what do you see around the corner? So as you're beginning to explore and, you know, as we said, Hey, are you anticipating the next pivot? You know, what do you see around the corner for Mika and Milo as the line, new products, new materials, different, uh, you know, making, I don't know, men's straw hats. I don't know. (laughs) I think I think um, you know we'll probably stick with the um, the two um, material mediums that we have being sort of cashmere cashmere blends for winter and organic cotton for summer. Um, I think really what I find most interesting as a knitwear designer is sort of ex- you know sort of exploring the boundaries, um, pushing the boundaries on what you can achieve within um, knitwear itself. And it's just sort of I think our upcoming um, autumn winter twenty two collection, which I've started designing, just sort of sort of pushing the boundaries in terms of what you can do in terms of the design. Find that quite fun so just sort of you know sort of pushing the boundaries in terms of knitwear um and i think our winter collection will probably continue to be 
our um, our focus. Our, mm. I think, you know, it's sort of organic cotton and cotton. I think it's, there's so much competition in the summer, whereas at least in the winter, there aren't too many kids, brand, kids wear brands that are focusing on cashmere. So I think um, that will continue to be sort of like the main focus of the business. And so perhaps sort of exploring more cashmere blends to make it more affordable. There's also um, mercer-sized wool, um, which when blended with cashmere, is really soft, but mercer will also offers less pilling. So sort of, sort of basically exploring, you know, materials that are not only sustainable, but also more, more harder wearing, especially when it comes to kids wear. And obviously trying to reduce the price for our consumer. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, how, about, how about stuff <laughs> like for the big guy like me, you know, doing like a cashmere merino wool blend kind of thing. I love merino yeah. wool because of... Yeah. You know, just how easy it is to take care of and its durability. But yeah, I I think I would love some cashmere in there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, cashmere is like eight times lighter than wool, but it's, um, no, 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 it's it's much, not eight times lighter. Sorry, got that wrong. It's much lighter than wool, but it's eight times warmer. And um, yeah, if looked after carefully, it's also very durable. So a good quality cashmere jumper literally can be passed out, Mm. you know. Provided that you wash it and store it well and look after yeah. it, but yeah, I mean, there's there's something there's something really lovely about cashmere. Really, I think it, I think it's because I grew up with it. I always had a cashmere sweater when we went right. skiing. You know, it's just so just been conditioned to think that you know cashmere is the way forward. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. Yeah. I love it. All right, so here we come down to the bottom of the ninth. All right. This is uh, yeah. the question that we ask everybody, Aiko, okay. which is what advice do you have for rookies in the game? Those starting out in business, those who've already have been in business, maybe looking for some guidance. You're in the game. You're, sure. you know, you're not quite a rookie because you've been in it for uh, a couple of years, but yeah, yeah okay. but you're, you're still, you're still fairly yeah. new though. So what, yeah, yeah. but what advice, what can I you share with folks? Don't be afraid of making mistakes. If you're going to specifically go into fashion design, I would say do not make a big first order for your first collection because literally no one knows you. So no one will be buying anything from you. So I would say um, with your first collection, just make a series of samples um, to test the waters. And then I would also recommend finding some buyers before you before you go into production for your first collection as well because you don't want to be left, left with a whole bunch with a whole lot of stock which you can't sell. So I would um, I would definitely recommend um, sampling until you are content with what you have. I would recommend not going into production for your first collection, just rather sort of making a very, 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 very frugal order and testing the waters. I would also encourage sampling because um, it's the best way to learn. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. And also sort of like, sort of having sort of, um, I mean, I have, I have to remind myself because there's certain moments when I sort of think, is it worth it? Should I just give up? Just to keep going. My father has this expression, that's, um, he calls it doing the hard yards. And I think um, with anything in life, whether it's sort of working for a company, being a broadcast journalist, um, you just have to do the hard yards. And I sort of asked my dad, so what helped you get through the hard yards? Because he had he did a lot of hard yards. And he said just the sheer determination to succeed. And I thought that was very, very good advice. So really that can be given to anyone doing anything, be it being a student, being a doctor, just be determined to succeed in whatever you just whatever you choose to do. And do something that you genuinely have an interest or passion in. Otherwise, what's the point? Right. That's really yeah, I, yeah. but I, my my father told me that recently and I thought that was um really, really good advice. Just mm-hmm. you know. I love that phrase. Yards. Do the hard yards. Yeah, the hard yards. Yeah, he's always going yeah. on about the hard yards. Yeah. <laughs> 
I could just... And then sort of like a, a bit of a, a twist on what Churchill said, sort of um, the definition of success is going from one failure to another with no loss of enthusiasm. So sort of picking yourself up off the floor, dusting yourself off and just keep going. Don't be afraid of failure. Man, I mean, I started this business. So I was like, if I fail, it's okay. So just sort of like, you know, no one's watching. No one really cares. Just get on with it. I love that. I love that attitude and the spirit. And uh, thank you for bringing in some historical reference as well. <laughs> yes. uh, that is terrific. All right. Well, listen, Ico I, and, and Henry, sorry. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. It's been really fun. Yeah, it's been uh, so fun to learn about your products and what it is uh, that you're developing and growing. Also want to tell our listeners, that you can go onto their site. They've got their summer sale going on right now with their organic cotton collection, as well as their AW21 collection, which is nominated for the Junior Design Awards and uh, all of all of the great fun stuff. So go to Mika, M-I-K-A dash Milo, M-I-L-O.com. Uh, and you can uh, find all the great stuff there. And uh, again, just uh, such a great time having you on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to seeing like a men's lineup coming soon, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, that's the ball game. So thanks for joining us today. And if you like our show, please tell your friends, subscribe and review. And as we like to say, we'll see you around the ballpark. Running the Bases with Small Businesses is brought to you by 38 Digital Market, a digital marketing agency committed to client growth with lead generation, higher conversions, and increased sales. Connect with us today at 38digitalmarket.com.